Isaiah 51 is our text for the morning, and I'm going to ask you if you could get a copy of the Bible and uh, put it in front of you. This would be a tremendous help to you today. I listened again this past week to a, a piece of classical music that I haven't listened to in years. It's a cantata by Bach called Wacket Auf, which just translates to something like, wake up, awake. And uh, it's, uh, it's a, a familiar piece, part of it anyway. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've been to very many weddings, you've probably heard part of this. So even though it may not ring a bell to you, the name of it, you've probably heard uh, part of it. Uh, it's, it's sometimes known by the title Sleepers Awake. And it, in the, this oratorio, the picture is of the city of Jerusalem and the watchmen standing on the wall. And they're looking out over the plain. And these watchmen on the wall all of a sudden shout out to the rest of the city, wake up, wake up, because the king is on his way into the city. He's coming into Jerusalem to marry his bride. So wake up, rouse yourselves, everyone get ready, the king is coming. And it's just this beautiful conversation. There's, there's a sort of back and forth in the part of the cantata where there's a a kind of call and response between the Savior and the soul of man. And it's just a really sweet uh, picture. And, but, but the call in this, uh, in this piece of music is for these, the, the city and, and the virgin bridesmaids who, who are supposed to be a part of this thing to wake up, to arouse themselves, to trim their lamps, and to prepare for the great wedding of the king and the marriage feast that is to follow and it it really is uh is a is a wonderful piece of music but uh, but it's the the title of that piece of music wake up is really the theme of the text of scripture that we have here today in fact it's taken from this text as well as from others and i want you to see that in verse 17 if you look at chapter 51 in verse 17, which is the beginning of our text for today, we finished with verse 16 last week. Verse 17, the very first words are just this, wake yourselves. Wake yourselves. He says it twice. This double imperative just kind of adds to the emphasis. Wake up. And then you see it again in chapter 52, which we're going to go into most of chapter 52 this morning. The very first words of chapter 52 are these, awake, awake. So friends, this message is one that is designed to elicit a response. That's the whole point of this text. Wake up, stir yourself, respond. Something is happening that you need to be awake to, that you need to respond to. This text is not here, this message is not here this morning to just give us uh, so much information but that everyone, every one of you listening to this sermon today would respond to it. That's what the, the Lord is calling his hearers to. But waking up is only really half of the response. What are these awakened people supposed to do? And that answer is found in the third double imperative in this text. There are three sets of imperatives. And the third is found in chapter 52 and verse 11. Look at the 11th verse. 
This one starts a little bit differently, but it really is the same double emphasis. Depart. Depart. And the message is unfolded throughout the rest of that section. So the message is this morning simply this. Awake and depart. Awake and depart. Let's read God's word then. You can stay seated. Isaiah 51, beginning with verse number 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of God, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over, and you, have, and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, verse chapter 52, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean, Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How Beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, for he has redeemed Jerusalem 
The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall go out in hate, for you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. May the Lord bless this text to us this morning. I don't know how familiar you are with this. A number of these um, phrases you've probably heard. You've listened to God's Word and read God's Word. And of course, as we read through God's Word every year, we come across this passage. But there is a tremendous uh, deal of good news, the good news of salvation in this text. And my heart is so desirous that that your heart would be awakened and would leap with joy at what the Lord has revealed in this text. The outline of the sermon is very simple this morning. It's just going to follow the contours of the text, and particularly these three double imperatives. So first of all, chapter 51, beginning in verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself. And that paragraph deals with the hope of release from the judgment of God. In the second part, chapter 52, verse 1 and following, awake, awake. And that paragraph deals with the hope of the glorious return of Israel's king and the blessing of God's presence among his people, the elimination of all that is wicked and ungodly. And then the third section begins in chapter 52, verse 11, with the last double imperative, depart, depart. And that paragraph is the admonition to us to leave the world behind and enter into our heavenly home. So first of all, we see the command in chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself, the Lord says. Stand up, O Jerusalem. And I, I'm laboring to make sure that as we come to texts like this, we understand how the Lord is speaking, how he's speaking to both the people in Isaiah's day in the near term in a kind of typological fashion, but also that he's speaking through the ages to those who would be God's people from all nations and all times. And that's the way the Bible uses this kind of language. Jerusalem here is both a typological near-term fulfillment, uh, talking about that ancient walled city and how the Lord would restore and rebuild that under people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zerubbabel and how the people would come back and return from the land of of, of Babylon and the captivity there and come and repopulate that city. But it speaks of something far greater than that. Like when the Psalms speak of the great son of David building a temple for God. And uh, we know that Solomon, of course, built the temple for God as the son of David, but it was far more than Solomon, right? In the same way, we see far more than just an ancient walled city here. For this 
has an ultimate spiritual fulfillment. Hebrews chapter 12 refers to spiritual, heavenly Jerusalem. Heavenly Jerusalem. That's what's in view here. I want you to see that. As we read this text, think about God's faithfulness to those ancient people, but think also about his promises to be faithful to heavenly Jerusalem and all who were a part of that. That spiritual city is described in Revelation chapter 21, for example. And when John sees the vision of this heavenly Jerusalem, as he calls it, it's coming down out of heaven and he's caught away in the spirit to see this vision of, of this heavenly city. And it's like, it's a gigantic cube, perfectly the same length, width, and height, uh, like the Holy of Holies in ancient Israel. This is the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from God. And on the gates of the city are the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel but it also has 12 foundation stones. And on those foundation stones are the inscribed the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In other words, this is the vision of, of the entirety of the people of God. And it's described, John says, like um, the, the splendor of the city is such that it's like a bride coming into the church in her wedding finery, bedecked in jewels. I mean, this city is glorious. This is the people of God in all of their perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees this vision of the bride coming in, this people of God, this church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this city of heavenly Jerusalem, and she is coming to be wed, to be uh, consummated in her wedding ceremony and vows with her husband in all of the glory that is his for all of eternity. That's, that's what we see here in this text. So now those same two images of, of a city and a woman are woven together in, in this text, in Isaiah. The city is personified here as a woman who is called to wake up and get up, stand up, rouse yourself. But hers was not an ordinary sleep or slumber. Hers was a kind of drunken stupor. Uh, she is described in verse 17. Take a look at verse 17. As you who have been excuse me, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his, what? Okay. She is in the stupor that is caused by the unleashing of the wrath of God. That's the picture of this city. A city broken down, without walls, fallen apart, abandoned, but it, because it's under the judgment of God. He says, verse 17, you have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Verse 21, you are afflicted. You who are drunk, but not with wine. So Jerusalem is drunk with affliction. Punch drunk, as it were, to sort of change the metaphor around a little bit. She's dazed and stupefied and unresponsive. 
and the affliction that she's experiencing, the Bible says, is clearly a result of the wrath and the judgment of God. And there are people like that, that God has brought under his chastening hand, his judgment, and it's left them reeling and staggering and just kind of dazed and groping around in the dark. Maybe they're under conviction. The Lord is just really going after them. He's really pursuing them. And it's just like that. It literally is just like that. The Lord's message today is coming to people who've just been stunned by the judgment of God on sin. Sometimes people in old days used to call these people people who were awakened. They'd begun to realize and it dawned upon them the weightiness of their sin and all of the judgment of God that was upon their shoulders. Uh, the gospel often comes this way. Before you, before you feel freed, you feel chained. Before you know what it is to be forgiven, you feel the weight of conviction. And the Lord says to these people, you're, you have drunk. The reason that you're suffering is that you've been, you've been made to drink from the hand of God, the cup of God's wrath, and to drink it all the way down to the bitterest dregs. And of course, in the immediate future, the city of Jerusalem would be utterly destroyed in the judgment of God by the nation of Babylon. It would be burned to the ground, its populace would be carried away into captivity, and the people would be left completely dazed and confounded. And so the Lord comes to those people, and his word is, wake up, stand up. And in verses 18 to 20 now, he points out the failure of all of Jerusalem's sons to be able to help her in her stupor to be able to support her under the judgment of God. And of course, that's what a person needs when they're, when they're drunk, when they're beyond their ability to walk straight and to think straight and to see straight. They need someone to come alongside and take their arm and to show them the way, right? They need someone to make sure that they get home safe. But look at the text. Look at verse 18. He says, there is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to guide her. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. There's no one to help her, to steady her, to get her safely home. Verse 19, these two things have happened to you, and who will console you? Namely, the two things are devastation and destruction, famine and sword. The Lord has brought these on his people. And the issue is, who will comfort you? Your sons have all fainted. They're like antelope caught in the net. They're, they are full of the wrath of God. Verse 20, the end of the verse. Even all of your sons are full of the wrath of God and the rebuke of God. The Lord says to them, go ahead, search your city. Survey all of the sons of Jerusalem. There is none to help. Now I want to ask you, why is it that none of Israel's sons could help her? The answer is the end of verse 20, right? Because they're all in the same boat. All your sons are under the wrath and rebuke of God. There's none to steady your arm because you're all drunk. 
I've made you all to drink of the cup of my wrath because all have turned aside and gone astray. There's not a single Savior among them. None of Judah's kings, none of her residents were able to deliver her, and none had honored the Lord as they should. There was no guide, there was no helper, there was no Savior among all of the men, all of the leaders, all the sons of that city. And friends, listen to me, there is no man on earth who is able to deliver you and I from the eternal wrath and the judgment of God. There is no other person who can stand and guide you safely into heaven. There is no moral example. There's no wise teacher. There's no powerful deliverer. Because all human beings are in the same boat. You know, you can imagine as a, as a parent, if you're a parent, uh, you have a child, you can imagine saying about your child, I would take, I, I think I would take the wrath of God if I could just take it for my kid, right? I mean, that, when you really understand the wrath of God, that's a fearful thing to say, but maybe we could, maybe we could imagine ourselves saying that I would take it. I would take all of the torments of hell if my child could be saved. But the truth is that all of us are under God's judgment for our own sins. There is no one who is not in a desperate state himself. Who can atone for this city? Who can save it? I want you to hold your finger here and just flip over to chapter 59. We're going to just jump ahead just for a moment, but we're going to come right back here. In chapter 59, the Lord is describing the sins and the iniquities of his people. And part of that is saying this in verse number seven, their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. By the way, does that verse sound familiar to you? It's quoted in the New Testament, isn't it? Romans chapter, some of you know it. I saw some of you mouthing it. Romans 3. Paul quotes this passage, along with a number of others from the Old Testament, and comes to this conclusion. All have sinned. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All of us are in the same boat. So if you're looking around at the world for somebody to help you, to somebody to save you, to somebody to deliver you, to somebody to, to make your life better, to somebody, to, to somebody who can make things right between you and God. The Lord is looking around at this entire city, and he says there's not a person in it. There's not a person in this world who can save another. And that's why he says in verse 16, in the same chapter, chapter 59, Verse 16, when the Lord looks out upon his people for one righteous person, it says, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There was no one to advocate for the people. There was no one to appease God so that he would turn away his wrath from the city and from that ancient people. There was no one to stand in the gap. There was no one spiritually sober enough to really step in and to steady that city and to bring it safely home. And so what did the Lord do? Look at the end of verse 16. Here is the most wonderful thing in the, in the, in, in the face of the absolute desperation of that city. 
that there was no help for them, there was no one that could rescue them, then the end of verse 16 says, so his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. There was no man to bring salvation to the city, so the Lord himself brought salvation to his people. And that's exactly what you'll see if you turn back now to chapter 51, back to verses 22 and 23. We see in these two verses that God himself will take away the cup of their drunkenness. The Lord himself will remove it from their lips, just as he had given it. And verse 22, thus says your God, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. There's a triune emphasis here, right? The, the, your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. It is the Lord himself who pleads, because there was no man. And the Lord says this, verse 22, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over and have made your back like the ground in the street and walked over you. The Lord says that after judging Judah, the Lord would turn and judge Babylon herself. He would take the cup that he had made Judah drink, the cup of his wrath and his anger, and he would put that to the lips of Babylon and make her drink the cup of his wrath. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And in 539 B.C., mighty Babylon, that great ancient city, that eternal city, fell, fell to the Persians, just as the Lord had predicted. But I want, I want to raise one question here, and that is this. If Judah deserved to drink the cup of God's wrath for their sins, then how could God take it away? If they deserved to drink it, how is it that God could and would remove it from them? And the answer is going to be unfolded as we continue to work our way through Isaiah. The answer will particularly be found in chapter 53, which you know well. In that passage, the righteous servant of God, the righteous servant, there is one righteous servant, and that servant would suffer for his people. He would suffer in their place. He alone would atone for sin because he alone had no sin to atone for. There was no deceit in his mouth. He did not do any violence, Isaiah says. And that very servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, went into the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. And there in the garden, he fell down before the Father. And in his agony, he cried out to God again and again and again. He cried out, Father, if it's possible, please take away this cup from my lips. But again and again, he said, But Lord, if it is not possible that you take this away, then your will be done. I have come to do your will, oh my God. And in that garden, he knew that it was the Father's will that he drink the cup, the same cup that's here, the cup of the wrath of God, the cup of the just anger of God against sin, 
that the servant, the perfect servant, should drink that cup down to the dregs, not for his own sin, but for the sins of his people. Not that he might be delivered, for he had done no wrong, but that the city might be delivered, that his bride might be delivered. God in flesh, friends, took that poison cup and drank it all, the cup of the wrath of God, so that you and I might be forgiven. And you, this morning, are either a citizen of heavenly Zion by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so that cup has been taken away from you, or one day you will face the final judgment of God and experience the eternal wrath of the Lamb of God, the eternal wrath of God Almighty against sin. The Lord here says to those who are awakened, to those who are citizens of the true Zion, through faith in the Lord Jesus, he says to them that there is going to be a wonderful future for them. And so in beginning now in chapter 52, verse 1, the Lord makes promises of a glorious future. And again, he calls to his people, Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion! Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust, and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. You get the picture here? The city is pictured as a woman, and she'd been lying in the dust, struck down under the judgment of God. She'd been lying in the dust, drunk from the wrath of God, sold into captivity for her sins. Now the Lord comes to Zion and he says, wake up, you're free. You're not going to be in captivity anymore. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to set you free. You are redeemed out of slavery. So get up, shake the dust off of you. And she is given a beautiful garment to put on. And friends, what is this? Well, the New Testament says it this way. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have, the response that I'm praying for, that, I, that, that the Lord is calling for, uh, even as he uses words like, wake up, the response that he's calling for is that you would put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be clothed with Jesus. Be united with him in such a way that you would be covered by his righteousness and his shed blood. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in him. Be clothed in his righteousness like a robe that covers up the shame of your nakedness. Be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Revelation 18 picks up on so much of the Old Testament and and particularly this idea of Babylon, but it refers there to something called Mystery Babylon, the kingdom of this world, the world that is hostile to God, unbelieving of God's word and his promises, and pictured in Revelation 18 as a woman, a city, the city of Babylon, but also a woman 
who is a prostitute. And there's a just a parallel, a, an absolute contrast between the woman who's the prostitute Babylon in Revelation and the uh, woman who is New Jerusalem uh, in Revelation as well. But in 18, it talks about the fall of this world, the fall of all that resists God, the fall of mystery Babylon. And the next three chapters speak of another city and another woman who's described as the bride of Christ, New Jerusalem. And the Bible says in that those chapters that righteousness is given to her like a resplendent gown for her to put on. And it describes her regaled, uh, dressed in the, in the righteousness of, of Christ. And of course, Jesus himself says, no one is able to come into the wedding feast unless he's wearing the garment that was provided for him. And that's the way it is. If you're going to come into the people of God, if you're going to be part of this Jerusalem, this heavenly city that is going to be the dwelling place of God forever, where all evil is banished. If you're going to be a part of that, if you're going to be a citizen of that, it's only going to happen if you are dressed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The garment of salvation is himself. So shake off the dust of your sin and shame and be clothed in Christ. You know, the Lord talks about, in Ephesians, about Christ washing his, his beloved who was covered in filth, the filth of her sin. Much like the prophets pictured Israel as left alone in her filth and abandoned in the desert, and God finding her and washing her, making her clean. Jesus, the Bible says, washes his bride with the water and the word. And he makes her clean so that he may present her to himself, a perfect bride without spot or blemish. And she walks in and she's pure and she's holy. That's the picture here. It's a city with its pure. There's not one evil thing in the whole city. Can you imagine going throughout the entirety of Houston and never running into anything evil or deceitful or wicked or ungodly in any way? <laughs> say, no, I can't even imagine walking down my street and finding that. This is a city that is filled with righteousness. This is a bride that's perfectly pure and holy. The Lord will make her so. And it begins with being clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself. For as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, who were washed, have put on Christ, Paul says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my admonition to you this morning. Put on Christ. Listen, wake up from your sin. God has provided salvation for you. You will never enter into his glory unless you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you are baptized in the name of Jesus, unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. Friends, you may be saved. You will look to the Lord. Now, verses 3 to 6, he reminds us, and I'm just going to go through this very briefly, he reminds Judah that their captivity in Babylon is not because God is in debt in some way, as it were, to some other god or nation. God has not been sort of boxed into a corner. Remember we saw this a couple of weeks ago? 
And the way he says it is that they have not been sold, or, or excuse me, that they were sold for nothing. In other words, it was no, God's delivering Israel into Babylonian captivity was no gain to him. It's not as if he had to get himself out of debt to some other god. Rather, they were sold for their own sins. It was not they, it was not any obligation on God's part. They were sold for nothing. And their redemption doesn't involve God's paying off any power outside of himself. You're going to be purchased without money, he says. I'm not paying off anybody. And by the way, there are some people who view the atonement that way, right? They look at the atonement of Christ as somehow paying off the devil for what we owe to the devil somehow, making a ransom to Satan so that we can be set free. The Bible says, says God doesn't owe anybody anything. You were sold for nothing. I gave you into slavery for your sin, and I will redeem you for nothing. I will redeem you without cost. Just as uh, he delivered his people from ancient Egypt, so he can deliver them now. He's not backed into a corner, but they're thinking of him that way as if he's somehow being boxed in by, the, by the, the other nations and the gods of their nations, was a despising of the Lord. But that would be turned around once, they, he, once he, they were awakened, and they would despise his name no more. But now quickly on to verse 7. And in verses 7 to 10, he really returns to the theme of God's glorious deliverance of his people from the judgment of their sin. And just take a look at those verses for a moment and look at the picture that's there. It's just a beautiful word picture. In verse 7, there's a runner returning from the battlefield and he's running to bear news to the city about the outcome of this great battle. And of course, the greater picture is that the life and death of Jesus was a great cosmic battle for the souls of men and only perfect obedience to God would satisfy his righteousness and deliver God's people from Satan's grasp. So the question is, would Messiah win? Would the battle be won? Would he be faithful? Would he be obedient all the way to the end? And now here comes the runner. How goes the battle for your soul? How goes the battle in the Garden of Gethsemane? How goes the battle on the cross in those hours of darkness when he cries out, My God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? How goes the battle? Who wins in the end? And as the runner gets close to the city, you finally hear him shout out, Our God reigns! He's won the victory! The battle's finished! And the messenger is greeted enthusiastically by the city. How beautiful are the feet! of those who bring that kind of good news, right? He runs with haste to spread the good news. And how beautiful it is when someone brings you good news, the good news of the gospel. Some of you maybe can even think of the person in your life that God used to bring you the good news of the gospel. You know, those beautiful feet you saw running to you saying, you can be delivered, you can be free, Christ is one. If you'll look to him, you can be set free. You can be a child of God. If you'll turn to him now, he is a great Savior. You remember the person who told you? Remember where you heard the good news? Maybe from the pulpit, maybe from a mother or a father, maybe from a friend or even a stranger. 
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And they are, and they are. And listen to me, you young people, listen. There are people all over the world who desperately need to hear the good news. Can you imagine them being able to say about you one day, oh, how beautiful were the feet of those who brought me the good news. I really do mean this. I pray, and I know many here pray, even your parents, they pray, God, please send more laborers into the harvest fields. Send my child's feet. I don't care if I have to go months, years without seeing him, if he is able to bring the good news to far-off lands so that the Savior's kingdom pops up in cities all across the world. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings the good news. Maybe that will be your feet one day. Maybe the Lord would call you to go. And you should just say, Lord, here am I, send me. In verse 8, the picture, the image now, I think jumps ahead in time. Sometime later, the great king who's been out in the battle, who reigns over his enemies, the great king finally returns home from the battle. And the watchman up on the high walls is the first one to see him. Notice it says eye to eye. Can you imagine that? Picture that. The watchman up on the walls of, of Jerusalem, straining his eyes. The king has been gone for months out to battle out in the far-off fields, and they've only heard little snippets of news, and now a runner has come and says, the, the battle's won, your God reigns. But every eye is strained to see the king. They want to see him return. They want to open that city. They've been preparing, right? They're ready. Their lamps are trimmed and burning bright. They're ready for him to come. And now the watchman gets the first glimpse of those royal robes making their way down the path. That leads to the city. And people flock out of the city to run out and meet and greet the great king and cheer and rejoice with him all the way back into the city. It's a wonderful scene. That's what you see here. They raise the shout to the whole city. This watchman who first see him eye to eye, they say, wake up, for the Lord comes. And by the way, right now, right now, we are kind of between verses 7 and 8 in this text, right? Aren't we? Between the shout, the victory's won. Your God reigns. The battle is finished. We're on the winning side. And verse 8, when we see the king eye to eye. Well, verse 9 calls for great rejoicing, for singing all across that entire ruined city. We're saved. And then verse 10, this great salvation not only rings throughout the whole city of Jerusalem, but it reverberates throughout the nations to all of the ends of the earth, it says. Because this Zion will be populated by people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. They will share in the victory and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is the glorious future that is promised to Jerusalem, but the people would need to believe it because their city would lay in ruins for 70 years. 
horns, the, 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 the temple would just be a heap of rubble for that whole generation. Torched by fire, people scattered to a far-off country, all of the countryside villages barely inhabited by anyone. I mean, the place is just deserted. The journey to go back to such a city from Babylon would be long and dangerous. So who would leave to go back? And the answer is really only those who believe God's promises of, of a, the bright future that was to be the city of Jerusalem. And so really now we come to, to the application of all of this. These words, depart, depart from there. From where? Well, I think contextually in the broader context of Isaiah, it's talking about Babylon. We've seen this already before. Explicitly, God telling his people, leave Babylon. One day, I'm going to deliver you from captivity, and you're going to come into the promised land. Get out. Leave. Believe my word and make their way there. Make your way there. Now, you think of the Judeans that lived in Babylon for 70 years after God judged their city, the city of Jerusalem. They lived in Babylon 70 years. Some of them, that's all they had ever known. They had built houses. They had built lives there. They were, gonna, they were being called on to give all of that up. They were called on to make this journey that would take them months to go from ancient Babylon to ancient Jerusalem. And that was if they made it at all, because there were many dangers and many uh, troubles along the way. And, and even if they got back, they would get to the city that would take years to repair. We don't appreciate this because we live in a different sort of environment, but if you lived in a city without walls, you were defenseless, and they were going to be defenseless for a long time if they were to go back to such a place. Who would leave Babylon where they had a, a life, where they had stability, they had homes and families? Who would leave that to go back to a city that's torn down without walls? There's no temple there. There's no people there. There's no infrastructure. There's no anything. It's just a heap of ruins. Who would want to go there? Who would wait for the years it would take to repair? And all of the enemies that would plague them while they were trying to repair and all of the fighting that they were going to have to do, who would be willing to do that? The answer is those who would believe. Those who believed, listen to me, those who believed the glorious future that God promised about that city. If you believe that, then you're going to be willing to leave. And that was the message. Get out. Depart. Those who have faith and those who have love for the Lord, because the Lord says, that's where I'm going to be. The Lord is going to return to Jerusalem. Would you not want to be where your Lord is? Those who saw him those who loved him and those who believed what he said about the future of this glorious city, those people left. Now, sadly, all too few did believe. Just a remnant of people. Ezekiel, or excuse me, Ezra says that 
less than 50,000 Judeans left Babylon to make the trek back to Jerusalem. Some 3,000 priests out of all of the people of God. But God's word in verse 11 comes to those who did believe. And he says, depart, depart, go out from there, leave Babylon behind, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. He says, leave Babylon behind with all of its uncleanness and idolatry and its sin. Did you know these very words are quoted in the book of Revelation, again, chapter 18, and applied to mystery Babylon, the wicked world in all of its forms. The Lord says that Babylon is fallen. Get out. Leave it behind. Depart. Do not touch the unclean thing. And the Lord is telling you, listen, if you believe, leave the world behind. Don't bring the world with you. Don't bring, bring the world and all of its sin into this perfect holy city. Leave the world behind. Purify yourself. Make a clean break. Go all in. I'm asking you this morning, do you really believe in the, you know, the glory of the, this future that God is holding out as something that's going to happen? Do you actually believe that? If you believe it, then leave your sin behind. Leave the world behind. Paul also quotes this very passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he adds this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, because what fellowship has light with darkness, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Listen, are you trying to hold on to Christ and the world at the same time? You know, you can't. They're opposite. No man can serve what? No man. If you believe, then leave. Leave the world behind, the Lord says. And I'm just, I'm pleading with you to believe. It, this is true. It is a reality that is coming. And you could be a part of it. For some people, that means you're going to have to cut off certain relationships. You're going to have to stop engaging in sinful behaviors that characterize this world. That you're going to have to relinquish the idols of this world that have taken the place of God. And maybe you say to yourself, listen, you're listening to the sermon and you say, I know what God says. I know he promises his future. And I know he says, be separate from the world and come into the kingdom, but I just don't know if I can. I, I just think if I tried to obey God in this, I just think, I, th I think I'd, I would just die. I mean, I just don't see how I could, could even go forward. I don't see how I could survive. This is just too hard. And I want to tell you that the Lord has a, a word for you. Listen, please. The Lord has a word for you in verse 12. The Lord encourages you with this. You shall not go out in haste. That is, you shall not go out in flight, running for your life. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And maybe when you think about obeying the Lord, you think, this is impossible. I just cannot imagine 
how I could survive and obey this or that command of God. I mean, if I were to really obey God, I just, my whole life, I just feel like it would, it would fall apart. I don't know how I could go forward. But the Lord says to you this, listen, I will go before you. You won't be going on that journey alone. You won't. I will go before you literally preparing the way in ways that you can't imagine now. I'm going to go out ahead of you. You're looking down the path. You're looking at this long, arduous journey back to Jerusalem when you're over here sort of halfway comfortable in Babylon and you can't imagine how you're ever going to make it. But the Lord says, I'm going to go before you down the road and I'm going to prepare the way in ways that you can't even imagine right now. Do you trust me? And it's going to come down to that. Do you trust me? Will it be hard? Yes, it will be hard. But you will find surprising provision along the way laid out in advance by the Lord of that time. And not only will God go before you, he says, but he says to these people, I will go behind you, right? Isn't that an amazing passage? I mean, if I have the Lord before me and behind me, <laughs> I am so secure. I will be your rear guard, he says. Not only am I going to be your, your forerunner and blazing the path and preparing the path for you, I'm going to come behind you too. Perhaps, you know, the... You can imagine that the Judeans might have feared that King Cyrus, who gave the order for them to go back, to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem, maybe he would change his mind like Pharaoh of old and turn around and chase after them from behind. The Lord says, I'll, I'll, I'll be your rear guard. You know, the rear is where people are overtaken by surprise, isn't it? I mean, you always face the enemy to confront the issue, but... When they sneak up from behind, you're caught off guard. The Lord says, I will be there. Maybe the enemy is pursuing you with superior strength and speed, and the, the uh, threat comes from behind, but the Lord protects and he defends those who trust in him. Listen, if you will trust him, if you will, if you will step out in obedient trust, leave the world behind, Will the demons still chase you? Yeah. Will you be hounded at your heels by temptation, doubts? You may be. But the sovereign Lord will go behind. And they will have to get through him in order to get to you. You will not be left alone. If you will put your trust, in him, he will prove to be faithful. The admonitions to you this morning from the very word of God are simple. Friend, wake up. Stir yourself from sin and sadness. Believe the amazing promises of God's victory and leave your sin behind. One day you will see the king. You will see him eye to eye. 
This one that you have to trust right now with eyes of faith, you're going to see him eye to eye. He's going to be here. He's going to be standing in this world. And until then, he will carry you through every danger, toil, and snare going before you and behind you to defend you. And maybe there's somebody, just somebody here this morning who's been in a kind of spiritual stupor and the Lord has given you over for a time to his wrath. And the message is coming to you this morning like good news. Wake up and leave Babylon. I'll leave you with the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, grant us faith to believe. Grant us to obey this word of the gospel we ask. In Jesus' name.